You are. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Again, our main passage has been in Galatians, which you don't have to turn to, where it says, Walk in the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, or wars against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you cannot do the things that you wish. And because we're in this war, I wanted to show you more particular about the war, and that's again found in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14. Well, we'll only get to probably verse 20. But it's the gap. And the question I asked last week is, are you caught in the gap? And what I'm referring to is the gap between what you are in Christ, justification, and what you are in your process, getting to what you, what, who Christ is, your sanctification. There's a gap of what you are and what you're becoming. And you say, well, what is the gap? What does it look like? It's, it's the sins. It's what we deal with. And sometimes when we think of sins, we, have, you know, we immediately have two or three that come to mind, but there are myriads of sins. What is the gap that you might be found in? Is it a lack of love? Just not loving like you ought. Is it pride or an arrogance? Is it stubbornness? You know stubbornness is a sin? Some people are very stubborn. Sometimes they even wear it as a badge. I'm stubborn. Well, you should, you should, what you really should say is I'm sinful. Maybe it's ungratefulness. Not being thankful. No matter how much you get, you always wish you had more. That kind of is, uh, goes along with the idea of covetousness and discontentment. Imagine God who has given us all the riches in Christ, what he must think of us the times and we're, we're discontented and wanting more and more of this world, and yet he says, I've given you all the spiritual riches in Christ. Maybe your gap is lust, and you find yourself wandering down that path over and over again. Maybe it's a critical spirit, but you would say, well, I'm discerning. Maybe it's a gossip, because I just wanted to share this prayer request. Or worry and anxiety and fear, those are kind of wrapped together. Or prayerlessness, just going through life not really depending on God and feeling okay about it. See, there's a lot of different gaps that can be in our life of where we are in Christ as far as our standing in Christ, and yet we're so far behind in the sense of how we're actually living. Again, we've all experienced this gap. We're called to act like children of God. We're called to be conquerors. We're called to be not victims, but victors. But many times we yield to the sin force. And by the way, I'm going to call the, the, the problem, this flesh, the sin force or the sin principle, the law of sin, okay? And, and I'm doing that for a, per, a particular reason. Now, Paul sometimes personifies it, but again, I want to call it the sin force, for purposes of, of distinguishing. See, our inward desire is to live for God. I mean, if you're a believer, that's how it should be. If you're a believer, you should want to live for God and to please Him and to worship Him. But we have this struggle and we experience this frustration. And oftentimes our failure or this failure, which is our failure, and we sin. 
Again, and when we sin at that moment between what we are in Christ and what we actually are, that's the gap. That's, and sometimes it becomes a trap, so now you can call it the gap trap. Now you may say, well, what do you mean it's a trap? Because sometimes we, at that point, rather than urging us on to holiness, which it should do, you see the gap and you say, oh, I've got, to, I've got some growth to do. It may discourage and depress and frustrate and even to the point of saying, I just give up. Hopelessness. You see how that could be a gap trap? That could be a trap. The, the distance, rather than driving you to Christ to become more like Him, could actually get you to say, oh, I just give up. Especially if you're somewhat older in the faith, a few years old in the faith, and you for sure thought that some of these things were going to be out of your life, and you for sure thought that this sin force was going to be weakened, and yet as you even are growing older in the faith, you still see this sin, it's still looking you in the face as a Christian. And you wonder, when is this battle going to be done? Well, I can tell you when it's going to be done, when I put you in the casket, when we have a little funeral here. Okay, that's when it's done. Uh, you say, well, how do you know you're, in, you're not going to... Well, I'll probably go first. I don't know. But the point... In other words, you can feel trapped. You can feel like a loser. You can feel like a failure. By the way, you may have failed in sin, but it doesn't mean that God doesn't want to give you victory. It's how you look at your failure. It, how you look at your sin. How you look at your disobedience. Does it discourage and depress you? Or does it drive you to Christ? Does it drive you to walk in the Spirit? Do you see victories? Do you see yourself closing the gap in certain areas? Or are you a perfectionist which says, I just want to have it all right now? And, and, and again, if, if you buy into the theology that says you can eradicate your sin force, in other words, then you'll be real discouraged because it's there and it's a reality. So we go to Romans chapter 7, and I believe this is Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God wants to give you an understanding of what was going on in Paul's heart. Okay, that's the whole point of Romans 7. Paul is writing it, but God wants to show you what's happening in, in, in his apostle's heart. I asked the question last week, who is the man of Romans 7? Now, some have said, well, he's an unbeliever. He's not even a believer at all. I mean, let's face it, how could someone say, verse 14, I am carnal, sold under sin. How could someone say, verse 17, sin that dwells in me? 18, in my flesh nothing good dwells. I mean, doesn't that sound like an unbeliever? Verse 20, sin dwells in me. 21, evil is present in me, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, verse 24. Sounds like somewhat something that Saddam Hussein could say. Wicked, evil, hate, I hate this. But again, as we said... That really isn't how an unbeliever even looks at himself. So I don't believe it's an unbeliever. Some might say, well, it's an immature believer. But again, does an immature believer truly have the understanding of the intensity of the fight? And I won't go into all the, the particulars, but I believe that this passage right here, 14 on, is talking about a mature, sensitive Spirit-led, mature believer. He, I, I believe he's talking about himself. In fact, I know he is, because look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. He, he goes from uh, referring to himself in past tense, verses 1 to 13, mostly in past tense, to now he, in verse 14, starting then, I am 
Verse 15, I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. I mean, he keeps going in the present tense, present tense. So he's saying, listen, this is, this is what's going on in my life right now. So we're talking about a mature believer. By the way, do you see how encouraging that is? That you don't have to make excuses for your sin and somehow almost like this. Well, I guess I really didn't have that thought. Uh, I guess I really... No, wait a second. We need to be able to look at what's going on in our spiritual life and the fight and be able to see it with open eyes. Sometimes I think because we have wrong theology, we try to skirt the issue and we never deal with the issue. You don't have to make excuses for it. We do, you don't have to convince yourself that that's not sinful or that you're not that corrupt in the sense of that... When I say uh, it, you, I'm saying the, uh, the sin force. We're going to see that in a moment. Actually, you have been redeemed. You are the new creation. But you got this old thing hanging on for the time being. But again, to have true victory, we need to see that, yes, indeed, it, it is carnal. It is wicked, this sin force. By the way, carnal, remember in Corinthians chapter uh, 3, he tells the Corinthians that you are carnal. And it's very clear that they're believers. So again, verse 14 shouldn't scare us. By the way, another reason I say that this is a mature Christian, for you who have walked with the Lord, isn't that your experience? Isn't that what you experience day in and day out, this struggle? I mean, experience itself would say, yeah, that's not an unbeliever. That's me, unless you're calling me an unbeliever. Thirdly, the confession of a believer is not that we have arrived at perfection, but that we are moving towards it and desiring it. If you hold your hand in Romans 7 and go to Philippians chapter 2, or excuse me, Philippians chapter 3, you see, again, Paul, it was interesting, Paul had confidence, like in Philippians 1, 6, he said, I'm confident in this very thing that he who begun a good work in me will continue it to the day of Christ. In other words, he was confident in Christ in the Father, that he was going to be completed, right? He had confidence in God of his, his future glorification. But here's the thing that he was also confident in. Before salvation, he had confidence in the flesh. Verse 3, uh, Philippians 3.3, 3, For we uh, are the circumcised who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I more. And then he goes through his pedigree, his, uh, his, um, all the things that happened before salvation. I mean, you know, and he says, I was circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, you know the whole thing. He said, I had great confidence in the flesh. I had great confidence that everything that I was doing was meeting the law. In fact, I looked at the law here and I looked at myself right there. That's the, that's the thought of an unsaved person. See, in other words, an unsaved person doesn't say, oh, I don't meet the law. An unsaved person puts the law low enough where it says, well, I think I'm almost there. But now let's look at a, a believer. Go to verse 12. Not that I've already... This is Paul. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which... Uh, Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. In other words, my justification. I'm becoming what I am, is basically what he's saying. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I haven't come to perfection. The, the sin, uh, the sin uh, uh, force has not been eradicated. 
But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So here's Paul saying, listen, I haven't arrived. So you put all those things together. Yes, this is, a, this is the thought of a mature Christian. I mean, honestly, as I've studied, you know how sometimes you come across a passage and it's like, man, that's refreshing. Because it just puts things in perspective. Like, this is reality right here. Romans 7. This is reality. This is, this is how you grow in Christ and you become more and more like Christ, even though you can identify and see your sin. It's hard to accept sometimes, Romans 7, that this is talking about a mature, seasoned Christian. Again, we could see it as an unbeliever. We could see it as an immature believer. But again, the whole point of Romans 7 is the struggle. By the way, let's be clear. Paul doesn't say that every time I'm tempted, I sin. He is pointing out the struggle, not the sin. You have to get that clear. It's the struggle. He's saying, I'm in a daily struggle. doesn't mean that he's daily sinning. Greater, than it, 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 greater is he that is what? In us than he that is in the world. And I could add on that he is even... Or, or that the thing that's in you, the it that's in you, okay? Greater is he that is in us. The Holy Spirit is greater. He can give you victory. He can give you consistent victory. But this is talking about the, the struggle. So, sanctification, therefore, is the process. This is what this is talking about. Of coming increasingly to see how sinful we are so that we will depend constantly on Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. What sanctification is, becoming more and more like Christ, is an increasing understanding of how sinful we are. And rather than it scaring us and depressing us, it should push us and press us and urge us on. Do you see the difference there? You grow in Christ. If you don't understand that, you'll get more and more frustrated. Oh, man, I'm like, you know, this is my 14th year in the Lord, and it's just getting worse. I just seem to, you know, I just seem to be more and more sensitized to sin. Lord, when will this, when will it stop? Well, it's had the wrong effect. The gap should, should urge us, and like he said in Philippians 3, press us. I'm pressed. This is an exciting journey. This is not a depressing journey. But that's what sanctification does. The closer you grow to, towards light, the more the darkness shows, right? It's revealed. The Christian life, again, is a warfare. A warfare within against the unredeemed humanness, if you want to call the sin, the unredeemed part of that humanness. So we have a war within, we have a war on the out. One guy said this, Only a Christian at the height of spiritual maturity would either experience or be concerned about such deep struggles of heart, mind, and conscience. The more clearly and completely he saw God's holiness and goodness, the more Paul recognized and grieved over his own sinfulness. The closer you grow to holiness the greater you grieve over your own sinfulness. The greater your sinfulness becomes. But again, let's put this in balance. But the greater God's holiness should overshine that. That's why it drives you to the gospel. That's why we say we should grow in the gospel. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. It's for Christians. Because if that's true, okay, let's just put a hypothetical. If it's true that the closer you grow to God's holiness, the greater your sin will be, as it were, magnify, you see it, then unless you run to the cross, the gospel, it will depress you. But if you run to the cross and see all that God has done 
through you because of Christ, okay, then it makes you want to worship Him even more. Now, isn't that an odd thing? Isn't that kind of almost ironic? You see your sin in a greater light, and yet it makes you worship God more. That's really what it is. Well, let's look at this battle a little bit more uh, specifically. He gives a general statement in verses uh, 14 to 18, I believe, 17, I guess. He gives us, this is a general statement. He, by the way, he gives a general statement, then he gives a negative statement, then he gives a positive statement, and then next week we'll look at the summary statement. So he's, he, he keeps going back over this. And I, and I put it down into kind of figuring out a general statement. You have the problem, the practice, and then the source. The problem, this is my problem. This is what I do, and this is the source of the problem. And then he does it the same thing. This is my problem. This is what I do, practice, and this is the source. And then he says it a third time. This is the problem. This is my practice. This is the source. Okay, he, that's how he's arranged in Romans 7. So first of all, the problem. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual. Again, defending the law. The law of God, he's talking about. The law of God is, is spiritual. It's good. It's not wrong. Because his whole argument is that you can't get saved by the law. Here he's saying, and you can't be sanctified by the law. It's good. It's spiritual. But I'm carnal. That's the problem. Sold under sin. Again, that word carnal is the adjective for the word flesh. I'm fleshly. That's why some of your I think uh, NIV says fleshly. I'm fleshly. By the way, if, if you're in a continual state of flesh, like Romans 8, it means you're unsaved. But here he says, but I, but, but I dip back into the fleshly. Okay? And you might say, well, what causes that? Again, the sin principle, the sin force, that unredeemed man, the unredeemed humanist. I'm carnal. Again, that sin there, look at sold under sin. Sold under sin. He's not talking about a specific sin. He's not saying like, I'm sold under lust. I'm sold under gluttony. I'm, I'm sold under uh, envy. That word sin, singular, is, he's referring to that singular part of himself, that sin principle, that sin force. There's this other that's not really part of the redeemed at all in, my, in me that's warring. That's, that's what's causing me to be carnal. Let's move on. Verse 15, the, now he goes on to the practice. In other words, a description of the conflict. For what I am doing, I don't understand. Let me say it this way. Like, it doesn't make sense. What I'm doing, it doesn't make sense. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. You ever feel like that? It doesn't make sense. I just had devotions. Why did I just blow up at my wife? I just worship God. Why is it that I had such a lustful thought? I just praise God for all of his benefits towards me. Why am I now at this point wanting to envy and, and covet and jealous and discontent? Well, it doesn't make sense. I've got this... Like I said, that to me is the common experience. Yeah, keep your hand in Romans. Why don't you go to Galatians chapter 2. To really understand, because, see, what I just read in Romans 15, he kept saying, I am doing, I do not understand, I will to do it, but I don't practice it, and what I hate, I do. And that word I, he's talking about his re the redeemed man, okay? See, he's setting himself up, he's setting the passage up like this. When, you're, when you see the word I, he's talking about the new I. 
The new eye is what happened after you received Jesus Christ. And he's putting it up against the sin, the principle, he'll call it the, um, the law, the, the evil law. Uh, he'll call it the flesh, but it's all the same thing. You can call it the flesh, the principle, the law, the um, uh, sin. You know, he, he calls this thing many, many names. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. This is, the, this is what happened to you at the moment of salvation. I've been crucified with Christ. That word crucified is in the perfect tense, which means something that happened in the past that has continuing and future results. And what he means by crucified is our union with Christ be, becomes a spiritual reality. In other words, Christ's story becomes our story. So what does he mean? With Christ. In Christ. It means we are, to be, we are so united to Christ that all of his experiences have become our experiences. What do you mean I've been crucified? It's in a spiritual sense, it is though I was nailed to the cross with him. I'm not saying I was, but in a spiritual sense, that's how it is. I've been united so that it's like this, two hands. This is Christ, this is me. And, and everything that happened to Christ when I received him and I'm in Christ has been put to my account. It's just like this. So as God sees Christ, he sees you. We walk in Christ. All our hope is in Christ. All our power is in Christ. All our peace is in Everything's Christ. I'm united with Christ. That's the first part of Galatians 2.20. That's what he means. I've been crucified with Christ. In fact, Romans 6 says, for if, if we have been united, again, perfect tense together in his likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. As he was buried, we were buried. As he rose again, we, are, we also have been rose, uh, risen with him. Look at the second part of Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live. Get the I. Not I who's living. That, the old I is dead. That's the old man. That's, that's what was crucified. That was what was gotten rid of at the moment of my salvation. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, i.e., I have Christ's life. If you're a Christian, you have Christ's life. The only life I have is the life that God gives me through Jesus Christ by His Spirit. I know it doesn't feel it. That's, and the last time you had an argument and had that wicked thought or whatever else, you probably said, that's... That's the other influence. That's not the you, real you if you're a believer, the real I. And look at the last part of verse 20. And the life, again, the life, what I do, what I think, which I now live in the flesh, in, in my body, because I'm still here, I have a normal physical existence in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, that's the new I. Uh, Galatians was very clear. We looked at that a few months ago. At the moment of salvation, I received Christ, and everything Christ did and is was transferred to my account. I don't mean his de deity. I'm saying everything as far as his sacrifice for me was transferred. And I'm, I'm the new I. Now, if you go to Romans 7, that's why he's using I. For what, now put that in the context of Romans 7.15. For what I am doing. Paul says, I'm, an, I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm the new, uh, I, I don't have the old man. Actually, it's, it's actually incorrect to think that you have the old man. The old man was destroyed at, at salvation. You're a new creation, a new man. The only problem is you don't always live up to what you are. That's the gap. And so Paul says, I do not understand 
Why? Because I'm a new creation. For what I will to do, that's the new I, I don't do, I don't practice. But what I hate, that's the new I, what the new man hates, what the new creation hates, that's what I do. That's what I do. You see the struggle? See, that sin still clings to his humanness. Although in his inner being, he hates and despises it. That's what he's getting at when he says, what I hate, what I, I, what I, the new man, that new creation, the new heart. I've been given a new name, a new family, a new father. But I, I want to go in this direction, but I, I still have this pull. Even what I hate, sometimes I do. Paul becomes more and more aware of the continued presence and power of indwelling sin, which he hates and longs to be rid of. Now again, why is that should be encouraging to us? Because that's what should be happening in your life. There should be this constant... By the way, this is not an overwhelming. You can still have enjoyment and peace and joy and all the fruit of the Spirit should be part, but you still see this thing and rather than terrify you in the sense of, oh, I, I can't... I can't deal with it. No, no, it's just that, okay, I see it. And it's in its normal Christian life to understand it's there. And it's always ready to hook you. That's the thing. That's why you need to know what are your temptations? What are the things that easily entangle you, like Hebrew says? Because you have to know that, that the sin force is there in your life and at any moment ready to hook you. Even the things that you say you hate, that I do. Get it? You see that? The things you hate, that I do. Not the things that God hates, those two. But he's even saying, listen, even the things that I hate, that sometimes I go down that path. We think of sin as a deliberate act. And Barnhouse had an interesting thing. He said, you know, it's not the hate, uh, those things I do, necessarily are even sin themselves, although that would include it. But it could easily be the desire. In other words, even to have the desire. You may desire to gossip, but you don't. But in your heart, there's still that desire. That's gone beyond the point of temptation at that. Okay. So here, when he's saying that I hate it, that I do, don't think of Paul as committing all these atrocious sins, heinous sins. It's just saying, listen... I, I sense it in my own being. I see the conflict, and sometimes it's even just a desire that I have. Um, one guy made the illustration. He said it's like, it's like a, a pipe, a big pipe uh, that ha- had, to be, uh, had to go over a like, stream or pond that was crystal clear. And in the pipe, there was sewage, raw sewage, that just slowly oozed out of it. It wasn't no major break. It just kind of leaked. And in doing so, contaminated the pond that was underneath it. And in some ways, that's kind of how the sin forces. It's there, and it kind of just leaks. And it get, you stained, get stained, you see it. It's, it's not like a full gusher. In an unsafe person, it's a full gusher. But it just leaks. I think that's a good way to think of it. So the problem, the practice, look at the source. If then I, there again, the new me, I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law. That's the law of God, that it is good. 
But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin. That's the sin force that dwells in me. This sin dwells in me. Again, this sin has power. It has energy. And it uses the flesh, the literal flesh, being on this earth as a beachhead. By the way, he doesn't say that he's not responsible. He's still responsible, but he just says, listen, let me show you the, let me show you the war. Let me show you the battle. So I'm, Paul would give counsel here at this moment. He says, therefore, don't follow your urges. Don't follow your feelings. Don't follow your emotions. Don't follow your desires many times. Why? Because that can be pulled. They can be pulled in the uh, direction of the flesh and of sin. Even though he says sin dwells in me, he almost makes it like it's the other, which it is. But understand, in the whole process, even though you're the new creation in Christ and there's the other, you're still responsible. That's where confession and all that comes in. So that's the general statement. Let's look at a negative statement. He does what he does not want to do. Again, the problem, verse 18, for I know that in me, i.e., that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. That word flesh is very interesting. Uh, in the New Testament, it's used like 10 times for different purposes. It, when it's in relation to sin, though, it's used three times. Sometimes the idea of the word flesh is the body, the actual physical body. And I think in this context, that's what he's referring to. He's talking about in his flesh, in his body. In fact, an old professor of mine, Floyd Barrickman, said, quote, Here Paul locates the sin force as residing in the body's flesh or its cells. That's why we need a new body. Because until we get rid of this old body, this force, this sin force, this sin principle is still resonant. That's the one way that flesh can be used. By the way, let's make sure we understand that the, it's not the bodies that the, it's not our body that's the problem. The, the Gnostics back, this was a second century uh, heresy, they used to say this, spirit is good, material is bad. Now think that through. Spirit is good, material is bad. Therefore, spirit is good, and anything that's material is evil. And so they would look and say, and every one of you are evil because you have bodies. Paul would say, no, no, your body, by the way, when you get saved, your body is the, what, of the Holy Spirit? Is the temple. But what he would say is this, your body is very, very weak, um, fragile, falling apart. And, it, and, it, and it, it's a good old shack, let's say it that way, a good old shack for the sin principle. That's where it resides. That's where the old, see, the sin principle is not you, it's this, unwelcomed neighbor that has taken up residence in your body. Don't say it's an alien. Just, Anyways, that's the first way flesh is used. It's used here. Let me just give you a couple other ways it's used. To refer to... The flesh could be re, uh, used to refer to one's human nature dominated by the sinful flesh. In other words, how it uses your unredeemed humanness... But the third way is actually the way that it's used over in Galatians. See, the way it's used in Galatians uh, 5 that got us here, the flesh wars against the spirit, spirit against the flesh, it is really, he's, he's looking at the flesh and saying that is the sin principle. In other words, you could say it this way. It's a figurative expression for the sin force. It's a figurative expression. I was asking some of the 
um, English, I don't know, majors, but different ones in our church. There's a, there's a figure of speech called a metonymy, metami. I don't know how to actually say it. M-E-T-O-N-Y-M-Y. Metonymy, metonymy. I'm going to call it metonymy. Anyways, the point is this. A metonymy is this. When, again, a figure of speech that consists in the naming of a thing by one of its attributes. You name it according to one of its attributes. Like if you're in England and you said this, the lands belong to the crown. You immediately don't think, oh, you mean all these lands belong to this crown that's like laying on the desk? No, the crown, one of the elements, is referring to what? The king. The lands belong to the king. But you could say it this way, the lands belong to the crown. And we know what you mean. When I say that, that you are saved by the blood of Christ, I hope you don't think this. He cut and then bled. No, the blood is one element of his sacrificial death, his substitutionary atonement, right? Right? Say yes, please. Okay. <laughs> one element, we represent the oath. So well, you could say you're saved by the blood. But you're only, you're only referring to one part. It's his sacrificial sacrificial death that saves you. So we use these often. Well, here, this is what Paul says. Uh, like in Galatians, when he says, the flesh lusts against the spirit. Not here. This is talking about the literal body in Romans. But the flesh lusts against... He's saying the flesh is one element of what? The sin principle, the sin force that's at, that's at war with the spirit. So I just thought I'd throw that out. Because, you know, I've been, I've been throwing out the word flesh, and I don't want you to... Th- By the way, I also don't want you to think the word flesh means immediately, oh, you're talking about the sensual, sexual sins. No. No, we're just talking... Sometimes it's the body. Sometimes it's the sensual sins. Rarely. Most of the time, when you hear the word flesh, though, he's talking... It's, it's another way of saying the sin force. So that's the problem. It's in my flesh. Look at the practice. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is, is good, I do not find. In other words, he, he's not doing, he does what he does not want to do. Verse 19, for the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil, that word wicked, again, another name for this sin. The evil I will not to do, that I practice. Or as the NIV says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I, can't, I just can't carry it out. You might say, but I thought you were the great Apostle Paul. The mature. Uh, remember, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit in this passage. It's not until Romans 8 that you get and you start seeing the Holy Spirit mentioned over and over and over again. So I believe he's talking like this. Guys, even though I am the mature spiritual apostle, even though I am a very sensitive, mature Christian man, Unless the Spirit of God walks right with me, I will fail. There's no such thing as a, a, a reservoir of power. Do we understand that as Christians? There is no reservoir of power. And what I mean by that is, this supply that He gives you gets you set for the day, and then He kind of like pushes you out the door and says, now nah, you go be good Christians. This is how God would say, every moment of every day, no matter how immature or mature you are, you need my Spirit's power. That's why he said, walk in the Spirit. 
Continually walk in the Spirit. So what, who is this man of Romans 7? This is Paul. This is the mature Apostle Paul. But this is the mature Apostle Paul that says, because again, once you get to Romans 8, you see this, but unless you walk with my Spirit, you will fail. There is no secret key that allows you to be independent of God. What maturity does is drives you to God. Again, verse 20. Now, I, now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, the new redeemed me, but sin that dwells in me. The sin force. I see I'm out of time. So let's go to the last thought. Do you have this struggle in your own life? Have you had it this last week? And, and sometimes in the Christian walk, we get discouraged again. And we, and we lose sight of how serious it is for us to stay pure. And what I thought, I, I mean, what I thought about was, is just to answer the question, why does Paul hate sin so much? Why is, it this such, why is this such a great struggle in his life? Why does he do such battle with it? Why does he mention it so often in Scripture? Why is the battle so intense? Why must we not excuse sin in our lives? Sure, we will take care of the big sins, but you know, a little bit of discontentment, a little bit of griping and complaining, a little bit of critical spirit, a little bit of you know, jealousy and envy, surely that's, that's no big deal. Why, why must we walk before God purely? Well, look at what sin does in a believer's life. It's the last part of your outline. And this is just a partial list, but this, should, this alone should get us to say, Lord, forgive us. It grieves the spirit. It dirties the temple. Your body's the temple. It stops your prayers. Think about that one. We say to pray, but if you're not walking with God, He doesn't hear. Sin makes our lives powerless. First Corinthians says, I myself should be disqualified. It causes the good things from God to be withheld. Jeremiah 5, your sins have withheld good from you. Withheld good. I wonder how much good we could have if we, weren't, if we were truly walking with God for some of us. It inhibits our spiritual growth. Remember Corinthians 3, he says, I speak to you as to carnal, as to babes. Paul says, I wish I could speak to you as mature men, but your babes, you, your, your growth has been minimized because of your sin. Would he look at any of us who have been saved for any length of time and still say, if God was to give you an evaluation, I still see you in diapers. I still see you in diapers. You know what? Sin brings chastisement from God. Hebrews says, do not despise the discipline, the chasing of the Lord. Despise means to think little of. It prevents us from being fit for God's use. Timothy says, if you're clean, it says this, quote, you're useful to the master. It pollutes our Christian fellowship. And this one gets us right here into the Lord's table. It prevents us from being able to properly participate in the communion. Corinthians 11 says, let a man examine himself. And I'm going to encourage you to do that. And let him, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who drinks and eats in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And he even goes on in verse 30, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. In fact, 1 John says there is a sin leading to death. Sometimes when we get sick, we forget that sometimes, sometimes, not always, obviously, but sometimes sickness itself 
is directly related to, connected to, sin. Some Christians go through their life not taking sin serious and having sickness the entire time. Remember, if we come before this table in a flippant, well, like, let me use the word, in a despised way, counting it little, not worried about whether or not we really are walking with God, not really worrying about whether we are truly proclaiming the unity that we have with God, that we are pure, that we are seeking to walk with God. God will judge. And it can be very, very severe. It might even be to the point, like John says, 1 John, to death. The sin unto death. So again, take your sin serious. Paul did. He did, and yet he still saw the struggle. So today, as you see the struggle, I hope you find encouragement in it. Oh, I see. I can see the struggle, but that doesn't mean that I have to sin, number one, or that this is somehow abnormal for a Christian. In fact, the closer you get to light... It's going to be obvious that you're going to see things in your life that are not right before God, even in a clearer way. The closer you get to light, the clearer you'll see who you really are, not who you really are. The unredeemed part really is, okay? And that shouldn't scare us. That should urge us. That should press us on. That should give us boldness. And and really to say this, and this is what I've been saying this week, thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving a picture of the mature Apostle Paul in Romans 7. I mean, isn't that a great, isn't it so great that we have a cha- almost a whole chapter on who Paul was? It gives us hope. Thank you, Lord, for just showing how, how the realness of the Christian life, the realness. So let's go before the Lord. Make sure that you are fessed up. If there's something in your life, something that has not been right even all week, maybe a month. I just heard recently somebody say, you know, talking about a person, they said, I've never heard that person repent of any sin. I've never heard that person confess their sin. I know they didn't do it in the family. Isn't that sad? A person who says they're a Christian and they've never gone, they're not perfect. Something's wrong in that heart. I trust that you are going to go before the Lord and make sure things are right. Let's bow our heads and ushers can come forward. Aren't you waiting for the day when you stand before the throne complete? Man, that's going to be a great day. No more struggle, only worship. But for now, fight the good fight. Know that your enemy's there. Know that he wants to bring you down. But know that he that is in you is greater than the sin force. Father, again, we thank you for these words of encouragement. Father, I pray that we would fight the good fight. Lord, not to back down when we see that sin principle in our life. To quickly confess and move on. To keep our eyes focused on you. Thank you, Lord, that we are standing before you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That his sacrifice has been completed. It was finished on the cross. Thank you that we come to you, not based on our performance, but it's totally of grace. And I pray that you would remind us of these truths when we fail. Father, I pray that you would guide us and that you would train us to walk in the Spirit so that we might have victory, so that we might glorify and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.